Church family, I invite you to open up in God's Word to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 is where we will be, and uh, you can remain seated as I read uh, this passage today. We're going to read all of chapter 5. Uh, the title of our message is God's Intervention in a World of Death. God's Intervention in a World of Death. I pray this morning that, that we would just anticipate God speaking His truth to us through His Word. Just remind you that God's, God says that His Word is powerful. That it, it has the ability to work its way deep into our hearts. So our prayer this morning is that's exactly what God's Word would do. It would, it would work its way deep into our hearts. And it would do whatever God wants it to do. It would lead us into His truth and into His grace and His mercy. Genesis chapter 5, if you would follow along as I read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. This is the word of God for his church today. God's intervention in a world of death. Benjamin Franklin once wrote this. He said, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except, do you want to finish it? Death and taxes. There you go. 
Now, he wasn't the first person to combine death and taxes as things in this life that were certain, but uh, he's often attributed with uh, being the first, but he wasn't. But he did kind of make that, uh, that terminology, that phrase, famous. Perhaps his list, and I would say, is a little short on things that are certain in this life, but I think we can agree with the sentiment behind his statement. Only things that are certain in life are death and taxes. Wherever there are people, there will be some form of government, and wherever there is government, there will be a need to have some sort of funding for that government, thus the certainty of taxes. And wherever there are people, there will also be the curse which sin has brought, thus the certainty of death. But not only do death and taxes fall into the category of things that are certain in life, they also fall into the categories of things that we'd rather not talk about, right? They fall into things we just, they're just not the kinds of conversations, topics of conversations that we just love discussing. Now, thankfully, we're not going to talk about taxes today, which I'm very grateful for, uh, but we are going to talk about death. Whether or not we want to, the Bible as a whole, and specifically our passage here today, forces us to talk about death. I know it's not a fun topic, but I want you to know, before we even jump into this topic of death, that because of God's powerful intervention, we can talk about death with hope and joy and victory. Church, we live in a world where death reigns. My, the word, by the word rain, I don't mean rain that falls. I mean, I mean the, the rain like a king would rain. R-E-I-G-N. We, we live in a world where death reigns. The Bible attests to that fact. But we also live in a world where God intervenes to overcome death with life. Genesis chapter 5, I believe, teaches us that despite the reign of death, God intervenes to overcome death with life. Despite the reign of death, God intervenes to overcome death with life. Genesis chapter 1 verse 4, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 4 constitutes really the first major section in the book of Genesis. And when we've seen God create the world, we've seen his wonderful design for the world, specifically his design for humanity. We've seen humanity sin, and rebel against their creator, and we've seen the resulting curses along with a promise of deliverance there in chapter 3. And then when we studied chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, we've seen sin get passed down to success generations where murder seemed to rule the day along with other sins. You can read about that in chapter 4. Chapter 4 focused our attention on the, the, the family line of Adam through his son Cain. The line of Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn son. But Cain nor his descendants were the promised deliverer. They weren't the promised deliverer. Remember, that chapter 3, verse 15, where God promised a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent, that really sets up the rest of the Bible. For the rest of the Bible, we are looking for that promised deliverer. But it's not going to be through the line of Cain. So God promised Adam and Eve with another son at the end of chapter 4. He provided another son for them at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5 traces the genealogy of the son. Now, his name was Seth. We closed with that a couple of weeks ago, the last verses of uh, chapter 4. This, this, this son's name is Seth. And then chapter 5 gives us his, his lineage all the way through a man that you probably are familiar with named Noah. 
When we examine chapter 5 from a zoomed-in perspective, like looking at the details, we see the theme of death emphasized, but we also see hope of life overcoming death as God intervenes into this world that's full of death. Then we can also kind of zoom out from chapter 5 and look at it from a kind of zoomed-out perspective. And that's how we ought to study the Bible. Zoom in and zoom out. Zoom in look at the details and then zoom out. Look at what it's saying in light of the rest of Scripture, the overall storyline of Scripture. And we zoom out from chapter 5. We see God sovereignly moving human history. That's one of the benefits of looking at a genealogy. In a genealogy, God, we see the, the forward motion of human history. But it's not just a a forward motion to nothing. But God is sovereignly moving human history toward this promised deliverer who would be the one who would overcome death by Himself intervening on our behalf. Himself stepping into this world and taking our place, taking death upon Himself and thereby giving us life in the place of the death that we deserve. Now, as we examine this passage, I think at least four truths emerge, which I pray will not only help us think rightly about the world of death in which we live, uh, but also will lead us to trust in God's life-giving intervention. The first truth we see is, is this. We bear both the image of God and the sin of Adam. We bear both the image of God and the sin of Adam. And when I say we here, I mean Everyone, all of humanity, bears both the image of God and the sin of Adam. The chapter opens with a statement we see repeated throughout the book of Genesis. This repeated statement refers to to the generations. We see that. Your translation may say something a little different. But this phrase, the generations, gets repeated throughout the book of Genesis. and And it serves as section headings. Throughout the book of Genesis, we've already seen one um, back in chapter two, um, and now we have the second one. Chapter five, verse one says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what that means is what follows is going to be a description of those who came after Adam. We've already had a description of those who came after Adam on the Cain branch of the family tree. That was chapter uh, chapter four. But. That was in the last section where our focus was on the son who was not going to be an ancestor of the promised one. Now, now God shifts the focus to the son who will be an ancestor of the promised one. And that's often the way it works, especially when we look at Genesis. We see, we'll see different genealogies and what comes first is an explanation of the family tree, if you will, that doesn't lead to the Messiah. And then what follows is a family tree that does lead to the Messiah. So we see that chapter 4, family tree not leading to the Messiah, not leading to the promised one. Chapter 5, the family tree that does lead to the promised son of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So in this new section, we shift to the descendants of Adam's son, Seth, through whom this promised deliverer would come. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. The first couple of verses here take us back to creation. They do. They take us right back to creation. It sounds a whole lot like we stu- well, like words that we saw uh, back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. N- notice what he says there. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named the man when they were created. 
So we're reminded here that God is the creator of humans. Humans are made in the likeness of God. Or as chapter 1 said, we are made in the image of God. This, this incredible, incredible reality. We get to bear the image of God. Nothing else in all of creation gets to do that. We are image bearers of God, which one of the implications of that is that God made us to have relationship with Him. We see and we're reminded that humans were created male and female. Humans were blessed by God. The text says that God named them man. God had the right to name them because in a way he was their father, right? He was Adam's father. So he offers this name. He gives this name to Adam and Eve. He calls them man. But then notice verse 3. It doesn't merely say that Adam had a son named Seth. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What's, what's the point there? What's going on? I think that the point is that since Seth bore the image of his father Adam, since Adam bore the image of his father, who was God, then Seth also bore the image of God. Which means that Seth's children bore the image of God, and their children bore the image of God, and their children bore the image of God. Humanity's status as image bearers of God was graciously passed down to successive generations, even though humans had sinned. In other words... Even though sin is entered in the world, we, we still bear the image of God. Now we'll see in a minute that it's, we don't bear it well, but, but we still are image bearers of God. Verse 4 says that Adam had other sons and daughters. Since we were just reminded that God created humans in His image, that these humans consisted of male and female, that means Adam reproduced image bearers of God, both male and female. All of his sons were image bearers of God. All of his daughters were image bearers of God. And this is a good thing that we get to bear the image of God. Every single human being bears the image of God. So we see here Adam and Eve fulfilling God's command to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God. That's good. But... Everything is not as it should be, because verse 5 says, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he died. Friends, that's not supposed to happen. That wasn't supposed to happen. There was not supposed to be an and he died. But there is. We're going to talk a even more about death in just a minute, but for now, just notice that Adam died, and let's answer this question, why did he die? Why did he die? The answer is very simple and short. It's because of sin. It's because of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. God told them death would come into the world if they ate from the tree they were not supposed to eat of. And now we see and continue to see death in this world. Death is the consequence of sin. And then if you'll notice, verse 8, Seth died. Verse 11, Seth's son died. And we see throughout that people died and people died and people died. What I want you to see here is that Adam passed down both the image of God and his sin. It's good that Adam passed down the image of God. Unfortunately, Adam has passed down sin. And he passed it down to Seth. He passed it down to Enosh. And on and on to you and to me. Church, every single person on this planet has value and worth and dignity because he or she is a human being created in the image of God. 
Sin did not stop us from bearing God's image. However, at the same time that every human is an image bearer of God, every single human on this planet is also a rebel against the one whose image they bear. We are at the same time bearing God's image and rebelling against the God who has created us. Every human is born under the curse brought about by Adam's sin, which means every human is equal in worth and equally depraved. The broken relationship with God, unless God intervenes. It's good that Adam fathered sons and daughters. We should be thankful. It's good that they continue to be able to multiply and fill the earth. Namely, because this is how the promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is going to come. He's going to be a man born of woman. He's not just going to float down out of the sky. The promised deliverer will be a man born of woman. So even in the midst of the death, even in the midst of image bearers rebelling against God and suffering the consequence of their sin, we see God still allowing them to do what will ultimately bring the answer to the problem of mankind. They continue to multiply, having sons and daughters. And so we're looking for one of these who will be the promised deliverer. But at the same time, what they're doing is filling the earth with sinful image bearers as evidenced by the fact that they died. Friends, we all bear the image of God, but we also bear the sin of Adam. Which leads us to the second truth. I told you we're going to talk about death today, and here we go. Truth number two, the blessing of life is marred by the reality of death. The blessing of life is marred by the reality of death. One of the most important points of this chapter is that death is now a very real reality, if I could put it that way, in God's good world. Yes, it is great that we do see life in this passage. I mean, God created Adam. There's life. Adam fathered Seth. Seth fathered Enosh. Kenan fathered Mahalalel. Mahalalel fathered Jared. Jared fathered Enoch. Enoch fathered Methuselah. Methuselah fathered Lamech. Lamech fathered Noah. Noah fathered his three sons. Every time we hear the word fathered, we need to hear the beautiful cry of of a newborn baby. There's a beautiful sound. And we see the fathering, fathering, fathering. There's a birth that's taking place. There's new life that's coming into the world. And that newborn first cry is a beautiful, beautiful sound. Sometimes later on, that cry isn't quite so beautiful, right? Like six or seven months down the road at 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, but, no, it is still beautiful, just in its own unique way. Uh, we have to work a little harder to see it. But that newborn cry, when I mean, we see that all throughout here, we see life, life, life. We need to hear that beautiful cry of a newborn baby. We need to hear the blessing of life. We need to hear the birth of the coming deliverer drawing closer and closer and closer. God was continuing to allow humanity to live and reproduce despite their rebellion against Him. And yet, the word Father is not the only word that's repeated over and over in this genealogy. Also, over and over, we see this phrase, and he died. And he died. And he died. We already saw the tension in humanity as we bear God's image, but at the same time, we also bear Adam's sin. And now we see the tension between living in a world that really is teeming with life all around us, and yet at the same time, living in a world that is so full of death. We look all around us and we see life. But at the same time, we look all around us and we see death. That we hear the beautiful cry of life with the birth of each of these children in this passage. We also hear the heartbreaking cry of people burying their loved ones. 
There is life, but there's also so much death in this world that God made. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where the blessing of life has been marred by the reality of death. Not too long ago, I decided to to turn on the notifications on my phone for a local news channel um, app that I have. I don't like having notifications turned on for my phone except for messages and phone calls because I don't want my phone going off all the time for random stuff and distracting me from everything else that um, that's going on. But I was like, you know what, I'm going I'm to turn it on for this news news station, mainly to just get weather updates. And they put out pretty good weather updates, and I was like, that will be a good thing. You know, as bad storms come and pop up on my phone, and I can see see that. What I wasn't prepared for was all the other headlines that they were going to keep sending my way without me asking. But what I really wasn't prepared for was that the majority of those headlines have the word death in them. Daily, daily, my phone now buzzes telling me that someone has died. Sometimes multiple people at one time. Whether it was a traffic accident, a shooting, a drowning, whatever it was. And those are just the deaths that make the news. Which is just a small fraction of all the deaths that take place each and every day. Almost every breaking news story that comes up now on my phone is an announcement of death. I feel like I'm bombarded with death and I get to chapter 5 in Genesis and I go, well, that, that makes sense. Because that's the world in which we live. A world where we are bombarded with death. In the U.S., there are over 8,000 deaths every single day. In China, there's over 30,000 deaths every single day. On our planet, 164,000 people die every single day. That means every second, two people die. Two people die. Every second Just think about how many people are going to die just in the time that we are in here this morning. We live in a world that is full of death. Now, 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 we may look at the lifespan of these, of these folks and go, my word, they lived a long time. And compared to how long we live, yeah, they lived a really long time. But if you think about it, their lives were incredibly short compared to the eternity that God originally created them to live. I mean, Methuselah, 969 years. I mean, come on, man. That's a long time. But compared to never dying, it's just a drop in the bucket. That's a drop in the bucket. They may have lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they still died. They didn't get to enjoy the eternal life here on this earth that God had had intended for them to enjoy. Death is reigning throughout chapter 5. It seems that death is ruling. And I know you know this, but it's so good for us to be reminded of this. That you will die one day. I will die one day. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be many decades from now. But death is coming. The consequence of sin is coming. We are all guilty. And unless Christ returns first, we 
will all of us face death. However, this chapter doesn't leave us in the tension of bearing God's image and at the same time bearing Adam's sin. It doesn't leave us in the tension of the blessing of life that's around us and at the same time the death that surrounds us. We don't have to just live in that tension all the time. This chapter goes on to point us to God's intervention in this world of death. And church, when God intervenes, here's what happens. There is an escape from death. Praise God when He intervenes in a sin-struck world, in a world that is full of death, there is an escape from death. The question is this, how, do, how does that happen? Uh, well, how do we escape death? What needs to happen? How do we become participants in this? Truth number three, a relationship with God is our only hope of escaping death. A relationship with God is our only hope of escaping death. I've always found the genealogy in chapter five fascinating. Maybe I wouldn't say always. Maybe when I was seven years old, I didn't find the genealogy fascinating. But it didn't take long reading through God's word that I just, I just, chapter five just kept sticking out to me. It's written in such a way that it makes a very clear theological point. All genealogies in Scripture are important. They all serve a purpose. This one is unique in that it not only serves to bridge the gap between two generations, the generation of Adam to the generation of Noah, it does bridge that gap. It moves us onward in the story to Noah. But it also showcases God's powerful and gracious intervention in this sin-cursed and death-stricken world. The way the text is written, it draws our attention to this point through the use of, of repetition that then gets broken. Repetition that then gets broken. Let me ask you, have you ever played the game, like one of the, I don't know if you could call it a game activity, I don't know, we'll call it a game, where you have like um, a, a, a group of pictures and they all are identical except for one detail in one picture is different than all the rest. You know, maybe like it's a, a clock on the wall, like a picture of, a, say, a classroom. And everything's exactly the same in the, all the pictures, except the clock in all the pictures says 3.30, and the clock in one of the pictures says 8.30. And so you, you're looking at all the different details of their faces, and, and the, the books on the floor, and the books on the desk, and the teacher standing there, and everything in the classroom, and you're looking, you're trying to find that one thing that's different. And it gets emphasized because it looks different. You're able to find it because it doesn't match all the rest of the pictures there. Well, that's exactly what we see here. The genealogy is very repetitive. It says the same thing over and over and over, except for switching out the names of the people, switching out the numbers of years that they live. But that repetition gets interrupted in two places. We'll start with the first of those two places. The text is emphasizing death by placing it as the last word in the description of each generation. Every, every little stanza, if you will, in this genealogy ends with the word died. It's death, death, death. You have everything, death. You have everything, death. You have everything, death. You have everything, death. We see this refrain over and over and over. And he died, and he died. But then the absence of death all of a sudden gets highlighted as that repetition gets broken by the power of God. I want you to, I want you to listen as I read the, 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 this. All right, so I'm just going to read the last phrase. I want you to notice this. If you want to underline this last phrase in your Bible, it will be great. So I'm going to start at verse 8, and I'm going to skip to the last phrase of each one. And he died, 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 and he was not, and he died, and he died. 
You see what the text is pushing us towards? It's pushing us towards this reality of death reigning over this world. And at the same time, it is highlighting God's gracious intervention. And He died, and He died, and over and over and over. And He was not. And He died. And what in the world is going on there? Everyone dies except for one. His name is Enoch. Instead of dying, the text simply says that He was not, for God took Him. In other words, Enoch didn't die. If He had died, they would have just said He died, just like it says for the rest of them. But He didn't. God just took him. This happens one other time in Scripture with the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that, quote, Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And this word taken is used several times in that passage regarding Elijah's being taken up to heaven, his going up in a whirlwind. So here, though, we see Enoch escape death. Now we've got to ask a couple questions. One, how did it happen? And two, why Enoch? How did it happen and why Enoch? Well, the answer to the first question is very simple. How did it happen? God did it. And he was not, for God took him. That's how it happened. God did it. God did it. Verse 24 says, he was not, for God took him. God took him. That's it. That's all we're told. And that's really all we need to understand, to know at this point, to understand the point that God has the power and the authority, church, to interrupt the flow of death. God has the power and the authority to reach down and pluck a person out of the clutches of death. Friend, death is no match for the author of life. When God wants to, He can interrupt the flow of death. Death may reign over us, but death does not reign over the God who is the author of life. God did it. That's how it happened. And that's how it always happens when any of us come into a place where we come out from under the consequence of our sin. God does it. Well, about the second question, why Enoch? Why, why Enoch? Well, we just have to take what we're told here. The answer to this question lies in two repeated descriptions of Enoch's life. Verse 21 through 24, in those verses, we're told twice that Enoch walked with God. Why Enoch? Enoch walked with God. Friend, only God has the power to intervene and stop death, and He only intervenes on behalf of those who walk with Him. Which leads to another question. What does it mean to walk with God? I mean, listen, I'm reading this wanting to get to, wanting to, get to the bottom because I don't, want to, I don't want to live under the reign of death. So what is it? What is it about this guy that let him, let him escape death? What does it mean to walk with God? Well, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. The fact that Enoch's son, Methuselah, died reveals that Enoch passed down a sin nature to his son. Enoch was a sinner. Enoch was not perfect. He inherited a sin nature from Adam just like the rest of us. But the phrase walk with God speaks not to his perfection, but to his relationship that he had with God. Enoch had fellowship with God. That's what this phrase, walk with God, it means we look at it throughout Scripture and we see this phrase used in different places. It speaks of an intimate fellowship with God. And this relationship, this fellowship, came through Enoch's faith in God, not through his attempt at earning God's favor. See, this is why we have to be so careful. Because we see this phrase, walk with God, and it's so easy for us to say, alright, well, I... 
I need to just I need to do the right thing. I haven't been doing the right thing and now I need to I need to do the right thing. And that's what it means to walk with God, to to just pull out the Ten Commandments and obey them, pull out all the rest of commands of Scripture and just try to obey them, obey them, obey them. And if I do that, I will be walking with God. But we would be mistaken. You see, God was pleased with Enoch's walk. That's actually another way you can say he walked with God is that God was pleased with him. My friends, God is never pleased when we try to earn his love, which we can never earn. We can never be good enough to earn. God's not pleased with that. He's only pleased when we enter into a relationship with him his way. He's not pleased when we try to enter into a relationship with him our way. Our way is to try to do good things and make God like us. And not be so angry with us. But that's not God's way. It's impossible for God to be pleased with our walk if we're not doing it God's way. Well, what is God's way? It's when we enter into a relationship with Him through faith. That means admitting that we can never be good enough. And so we're going to cast ourselves in complete dependence upon God to rescue us from death. That's what faith means. Enoch was a man. Not merely of good works, but he was a man of faith. And we know that even though we don't see the word faith here. One, because we just know throughout Scripture that what pleases God, a walk that pleases God is one of faith. But we know specifically about Enoch because we can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, and see what God's Word says about Enoch. And it says this, By faith, Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And notice this, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, there's that faith word, that He exists and that He rewards those who seek after Him. In other words, when we look at the passage in Genesis 5, when we look at Hebrews 11, God accepted Enoch's walk not because He was trying to earn His way out of death, but because His walk was the fruit of faith in God. It was the fruit of complete dependence upon God. Listen, a relationship with God is our only hope of escaping death. Enoch had that. But a relationship with God does not come by human effort. It never has. It never will. It comes by God's grace, which is given to those who walk by faith in God. Not trying to earn their salvation, but trusting in God and His promises to save. Speaking of God's promises, that leads us to the fourth truth. It leads us to the fourth truth. And that's this. We can look forward to a promised rest from the curse of sin. We can look forward to a promised rest from the curse of sin. And we think about the curse of sin, we think about death. That's what comes as a result of sin. I said a minute ago that this repetitious flow in this genealogy gets interrupted at two key points. The first is with Enoch, where we see that he doesn't die and he's just taken up to be with God. Because he walked with God. The second is with this guy named Lamech. Now, in chapter 4, we had a guy named Lamech. And he, he was not an example to follow, right? He bragged about, about murdering somebody. He, he had many wives. He, he, was, he was an epitome of, of the depravity of the human heart. 
That's what he was a picture of. But now we have another guy named Lamech in Seth's line. When we get to verses 28 through 31, we're given additional information regarding his naming of his son Noah. The text says this, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What in the world is Lamech talking about? Well, I think he's talking about the promise God made in the Garden of Eden. In light of the curse that was brought about by sin, remember, chapter 3, verse 15, God promised to send a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent. And this promised son would lift the curse which made life in this world toilsome and painful. That was part of the curse, right? God cursed the ground. And now it's going to be difficult for crops to grow. We're going to work the ground by the sweat of our brow. We're going to have to labor hard. There's going to be thorns and there's going to be thistles. And now for generations, mankind has lived in this painful toil and the curse of this earth. And Lamech has a child, a son, and he names him Noah. And he says, this one will bring us relief from our toil, from our pain. The name Noah means rest. Or relief. And it also sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort. Noah believed his son would bring in this promised rest from the curse of sin. Now, in one sense, Lamech was wrong. In one sense, Lamech was wrong. You see, Noah was not the promised son of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Lamech ended up dying. And if we fast forward to the end of chapter 9, we see this all too familiar refrain. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And what comes next? And he died. However, in another sense, Lamech was right. Lamech was right. While Noah was not the promised son of Genesis 3.15, he would be the one through whom the promised son would come. One of the purposes of this genealogy is to narrow the focus onto the line of Adam which would produce the promised deliverer. He wouldn't come through Cain, but he would come through Adam's son Seth, and even more specifically through Adam's descendant named Noah, who was of the line of Seth. See what God is doing here. God had promised rest, from the curse of sin. He promised to lift the curse. That doesn't mean to have rest from the curse, that the curse would be lifted. We wouldn't live under the burden of the curse anymore. God's promised this, and despite the fact that God's world that He made has become full of death, God is still working out His plan to keep His promise, and that is signified by Lamech naming his son Noah. This one will bring us rest. There's still this hope of rest from the curse. See, the reason God was able to provide Enoch with an escape from death, even though Enoch was not a perfect man, was because God was looking ahead. He was looking ahead to that coming son who would come from Lamech, from Noah, and who would lift the curse. He was looking ahead for that coming one who would pay the price for Enoch's sin and for the sin of everyone who had who would place their faith in Jesus Christ, who would enter into a relationship with God through faith. Noah, though he did end up being a picture of faith and of salvation, as we'll see when we get to the flood story, Noah did not fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter 3, 15. But I want you to know today that there's a man who did. His name is Jesus Christ. 
His lineage is traced back to Noah and Seth and Adam, and he did fulfill the promises of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross in our place, he broke the curse. He took it upon himself. He bore the curse on our behalf. Scripture says, cursed is he who is hanged upon a tree. He was cursed for us, and then as a result, provides us with an escape from death. We see death reigning in Genesis chapter 5. We see death reigning all around us, church. But death is no power for the promise-keeping, life-giving power of God. God stepped into this world literally when Jesus became a man. The Son of God taking human form. He stepped into this world and Jesus intervened in such a way that He took death upon Himself. And then he conquered death by rising from the grave. You know, church, when I read Genesis chapter 5, and I see, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and know it's just going to continue, and one day it's going to say, and Zach died. Not that I'm going to be in God's Word, but you know what I mean. Right? One day it's going to be, I, and I died. When I read that, I just see death, 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 death. I just want to shout triumphantly with the Apostle Paul, but death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, I want, to, I want to say this. I want to say this in chapter 5. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, Paul said, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to yell it at the top of my lungs at Genesis chapter 5 because I know what was coming. They didn't know, but I know, you know, we know that Jesus came and conquered death on our behalf. I love how Paul put it in his letter to the Romans. Here's just a sample of his words from Romans chapter 5. I encourage you to read it. But he said this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, he goes on and says that death reigned. That's not my word. I'm getting this from the Bible. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. But then Paul goes on and says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more, will those who receive, note that, here's the faith part, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Church, this is good news. In a world full of death, we can have a hope of everlasting life. You say, can I really escape death? Like, can I really escape death? The answer is yes and no. Okay? No, you might not escape death the same way Enoch escaped death. Okay? doesn't mean that you won't face death. doesn't even mean that you won't breathe a last breath. And be laid into the ground. God never promises to take us like He took Enoch. However, if we are in Christ, the answer in one another sense is yes. Because the death we die on this earth is not final. It is not final. Listen to Jesus' words. These words have just been burning in my mind as I've been thinking through Genesis chapter 5. Listen to Jesus' words to Martha. And Martha, her brother's just died. He's been in the tomb four days. She is, she is feeling the weight of Genesis 5 and he died and he died and he died. She's experiencing the reality of death reigning over the world in which she is living. And she comes broken hearted to Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. 
He says, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What's Jesus saying? This is, all, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if you die before Christ returns, before he comes back, don't worry, you're going to rise and live for, forever. And if you're still alive when Jesus comes back, then... Well, you're not going to die. You're just going to be taken up, kind of like Enoch was, and live with him. Regardless of whether you die before Christ comes or you're alive when Christ comes, death is not the end. Death is not the end. But he says, for those who believe. You catch that? I'm the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me. Not everyone in the world, but whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Listen, death in one sense is certain, but so is God's power to intervene and rescue us from death. So is God's promise. This is certain. God's promise to give us rest from the curse where we no longer live under the condemnation of our sin and where we get to look forward to that eternal rest that Christ is preparing for us right now. That rest in the presence of God. I am thankful, church, that the inevitability of death is superseded by the life-giving intervention of God. Friend, God has the power to intervene and stop death, but remember, it's only for those who walk with God. You say, Pastor, I want to walk with God. <laughs> I want life to overcome death. I want to, I want to, I want to walk with God. God's made it very very clear how that happens. It's through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's through belief in Jesus. Not just belief that He was a real person. Not even just belief that He really died on the cross. But trust that when He died, He was dying in your place for your sin. And when He rose, He was conquering death on your behalf. And faith that He is the only way of salvation. So if you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then you need to do that today. It's the only way that we escape the consequence of our sin. It's the only way we have everlasting life. Let me provide one other quick application. If you have trusted in Christ, which I know many of us have, if you have had the curse of sin lifted from you, You and I are still living in a world full of death. And we're surrounded by people who are on their way to death. And not just a temporary death where they will rise and live forever with God, but an eternal death where they will experience the punishment for their sin forever and ever and ever. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you need to do so. And if you have trusted in Jesus, who are you telling who are you sharing the good news that death doesn't have to reign over their life anymore? That they can believe in Christ. Christ will rescue them. Because He died in their place. Do you need to believe? Who do you need to tell? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you help us God, some people in this room may need your gracious help to trust in Jesus for salvation.
And I pray that right now, right now, even as I am praying, they would be crying out to you and saying, God, I need you to rescue me from death. Not just a, not just a breathing a last breath on this earth, but I need you to rescue me from an eternal death where I bear the punishment for my sin. And God, I need you to do that through Jesus because He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who's paid the price for my sin. And I believe in what He did upon the cross to rescue me. And God, I want to walk with You, not just trying to clean up my act and be a good person, but I want to walk with You by placing my faith in Jesus. God, I pray that You would help that person make that choice to follow Jesus today. And God, for those of us who have, God, would You burden our hearts with those around us who are living under the reign of death and who need to know that there is There is a hope of of life that overcomes death. And it's found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that promised Son, who brings us relief from the curse of sin. God, would You work Your truth into our hearts, even as we respond in song. Would You be at work in us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.